0: Welcome to another episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. This one titled, James Dean's Little Bastard and Other Famous Curses. An unusual name to be sure, and an episode filled to the brim with history, legend, folklore, and mystery. You know, curses come in a variety of shapes and forms. There are curses to include revenge upon certain people, like those who disturbed King Tut's tomb or curses on U.S. presidents that go back on their words to the Indians. Certain cursed cars, like James Dean's poor spider, the Little Bastard, which, after rushing him to his death, continued to rack up more deaths, according to legend. There's cursed families, like the Kennedy family, cursed objects, like the Hope Diamond, and countless others. Then there were the curses I was known to utter when the razors I purchased from the corner drugstore nicked my chin and neck and spotted my clean white shirts until I found out about Harry's razors. No more nicks, no more blood spots on my shirts and face, and one great shave every morning. Now I look forward to shaving. Who'd have thunk it? The first thing I noticed about Harry's razors was the weight of the razor grip and the way it felt in my hands. Solid, smooth, and precise, with a good feel to the handle. The flexible head hits all the contours, and the gel they provide works perfectly in small amounts. The second thing I noticed was that the cost of the replacement blades for Harry's was much less than I was spending at the drugstore, and the blades last over a week's worth of shaves. I was shelling out about $4 a blade. Harry's replacement blades are $2, and they're German-engineered. Harry's bought out a top-flight razor manufacturing facility in Germany, And you can tell the quality difference immediately. These are the best blades and the best razors I have ever used. Third, I like the look of the razor. It has classic looks, none of the junky-looking plastic you see in drugstores. Check them out at Harrys.com. That's H A R R Y S, dot com, and you'll see what I mean. I like them so much that I called Harry's Razors and asked if they would sponsor us, and they agreed. They went one step further and asked 1001 heroes to tell all of you that they want to send you a free trial kit with the famous Harry's razor, a 5 blade cartridge, one quality German engineered blade, and their shaving gel. All it will cost you is the shipping, which is about $3. And the best thing of all, if you put 1001, that's 1001 in the promo code, you'll get their post shave balm free added in there. The post-shave balm is terrific. Makes your face feel smooth and good. I highly recommend it. So support our show and get something in return for that. Go to the website and order the free trial kit. It's an $18 value for $3 shipping is all you pay. And now, our show. Ever heard of the curse of King Tutankhamen? In 1922, English explorer Howard Carter was leading an expedition funded by George Herbert, the fifth earl of Carnarvon, when Carter discovered the tomb of ancient Egyptian king Tutankhamun and all the riches it held. After opening the tomb, however, strange and unpleasant events began to take place in the lives of those involved in the expedition. Some believed that there was a foreboding inscription, Death comes on wings to he who enters the tomb of a pharaoh, on King Tut's tomb, that put a curse on anyone who disturbed his final resting place. Lord Carnivon's story in particular is the most bizarre. Not long after the discovery of King Tut's tomb, the adventurous Earl came to Cairo and apparently died from pneumonia following complications from a mosquito bite. Allegedly, at the exact moment Carnivon passed away, all the lights in the city mysteriously went out in Cairo, and, back in England, Carnivon's dog fell over dead. In addition... Several other people involved with the expedition died too, including Carter's assistant, his assistant's father, and some of Carter's relatives. Carter, however, seemed to escape the curse himself. The famous Egyptologist James Henry Breasted worked with Carter soon after the first opening of the tomb. He reported how Carter sent a messenger on an errand to his house. On approaching his home, the messenger thought he heard a faint, almost human cry. Upon reaching the entrance, he saw the bird cage occupied by a cobra, the symbol of Egyptian monarchy. Carter's canary had died in its mouth, and this fueled local rumors of a curse. Arthur Weigel, a previous inspector general of antiquities to the Egyptian government, reported that this was interpreted as Carter's house being broken into by the royal cobra, the same as that worn on the king's head to strike enemies. And this all happened on the very day the king's tomb was being broken into. An account of the incident was reported by the New York Times on the 22nd of December, 1922. Two weeks before Carnivon died, Marie Corelli wrote an imaginative letter that was published in the New York World magazine, in which she quoted an obscure book that confidently asserted that dire punishment would follow any intrusion into a sealed tomb. A media frenzy followed, with reports that a curse had been found in the king's tomb, though this was untrue. The superstitious Benito Mussolini, who had once accepted an Egyptian mummy as a gift, ordered its immediate removal from the Palazzo Chigi. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, creator of Sherlock Holmes, suggested that Lord Carnivon's death had been caused by elementals, created by Tutankhamun's priests to guard the royal tomb and this further fueled media interest. Arthur Weigel reported that six weeks before Carnarvon's death, he had watched the Earl laughing and joking as he entered the King's tomb and said to a nearby reporter, H.V. Morton, I gave him, meaning Carnarvon, six weeks to live. The first autopsy carried out on the body of Tutankhamun by Dr. Derry found a healed lesion on the left cheek, but as Carnarvon had been buried six months previously, It was not possible to determine if the location of the wound on the king corresponded with the fatal mosquito bite on Carnarvon. In 1925, the anthropologist Henry Field, accompanied by Breasted, visited the tomb and recalled the kindness and friendliness of Carter. He also reported how a paperweight given to Carter's friend Sir Bruce Ingram was composed of a mummified hand with its wrist adorned with a scarab bracelet Marked with, Cursed be he who moves my body. To him shall come fire, water, and pestilence. Soon after receiving the gift, Ingram's house burned down, followed by a flood when it was rebuilt. Howard Carter was entirely skeptical of all such curses. He did report in his diary a strange account in May 1926, however, when he saw jackals of the same type as Anubis, the guardian of the dead, in Egypt, for the first time in over 35 years of working in the desert. Skeptics have pointed out that many others who visited the tomb or helped discover it lived long and healthy lives. A study showed that of the 58 people who were present when the tomb and sarcophagus were opened, only eight died within a dozen years. All the others were still alive, including Howard Carter, who died of lymphoma in 1939 at the age of 64. The last survivor, American archaeologist J. O. Kinnaman, died in 1961, a full 39 years, after the event. Next, the Kennedy Curse. No one knows for sure if anyone ever placed a curse on the Kennedy family, but to all onlookers, it sure looks like it. The following Kennedy family tragedies have led some to believe that there must be a curse on the whole bunch. Joseph P. Kennedy, Jr., born in 1915, was the oldest of nine children born to Joseph P. Kennedy, Sr. and Rose Fitzgerald Kennedy. A talented student and athlete, Kennedy graduated from Harvard College in 1938, later attending Harvard Law School. But he left before graduation to join the U.S. Navy during World War II, entering flight school in 1942 to train as a pilot. After flying patrols in the Caribbean, he went to Europe in the fall of 1943 to fly with the British Naval Command. He completed enough combat missions to become eligible to return home to the United States, but opted to remain in the military and volunteer for a dangerous, top-secret bombing mission over Normandy, France, codenamed Operation Aphrodite. Kennedy's mission was to direct an explosive-packed, radio-controlled drone-liberator bomber, into a German V-2 rocket-launching site. However, on the evening of August twelfth, 1944, the explosives in Kennedy's plane detonated prematurely in flight, a very strange circumstance, and he died at age 29. Joe Jr.'s socialite, free-spirited sister, Kathleen Kick Kennedy, died unexpectedly in a plane crash just four years after Joe Jr., On May 13, 1948, Kick and her otherwise married lover Fitzwilliam were flying from Paris to the French Riviera for a vacation. At 3.30 in the afternoon, their plane took off, reaching an altitude of 10,000 feet. Approximately one hour into the flight, radio contact was lost with the plane when it entered the region near Vienne, which was also close to the center of a storm. The plane's four occupants, endured 20 minutes of severe turbulence which bounced their small plane up and down as much as several thousand feet at a time. When they finally cleared the clouds, they instantly discovered that the plane was in a dive and moments away from impact, and they attempted to pull up. The stress of the turbulence, coupled with the sudden change of direction, tore loose one of the wings, followed by both engines and finally the tail. The plane's fuselage then spun into the ground seconds later, coming to rest nose-down in a ravine, after striking terrain near the summit of Le Coran, the highest of the Cévennes Mountains in the Saint-Basile, Ardèche, France. Kennedy was instantly killed along with Fitzwilliam, pilot Peter Townshend, and navigator Arthur Freeman. Due to Kick's free-spirited life choices which alienated her from her family, Her father was the only family member to attend the funeral, arranged by the Cavendishes. Rose Kennedy refused to attend her daughter's memorial service. Instead, it was claimed, choosing to enter a hospital for routine medical tests. John Fitzgerald Kennedy, Joe's younger brother, popularly known as JFK, became the 35th President of the United States and was assassinated in 1963 in Dallas, Texas. His assassination saddened and shocked America during a time of post-war growth that would culminate in the realization of JFK's dream to place Americans on the moon, which took place six years after his death, on July 20th, 1969. JFK, at the time of his assassination, was only 46. By now, the public was hoping that the Kennedy family had suffered enough, but fate was to continue to wreak havoc upon Kennedy lives. One year after JFK's death, on June 16th, 1964, U.S. Senator Ted Kennedy was involved in a plane crash in which one of the aides and the pilot were killed. Ted was pulled from the wreckage by fellow Senator Birch E. By the Second and spent weeks in a hospital recovering from a broken back, a punctured lung, broken ribs, and internal bleeding. But he survived. Four years later, on June 5, 1968, U.S. Senator Robert F. Kennedy was assassinated by Sirhan Sirhan in Los Angeles, immediately following his victory in the California Democratic presidential primary. Sirhan pleaded guilty to Robert's murder and is serving a life sentence at the Richard J. Donovan Correctional Facility. One year after that, on July 18, 1969, in the Chappaquiddick incident, Ted Kennedy, who had miraculously survived a plane crash just years before, accidentally drove his car off a bridge on Chappaquiddick Island fatally trapping his 28-year-old colleague, Mary Joe Kopechny, inside. Ted pleaded guilty to a charge of leaving the scene of the accident after causing injury. In his televised statement a week later, Ted stated that on the night of the incident, he wondered whether some awful curse did actually hang over all the Kennedys. Ted's actions during that fateful evening hung like a pall over his ambitions to the presidency for the rest of his life. On August 13, 1973, Joseph P. Kennedy was the driver of a car that crashed and left his passenger, Pam Kelly, paralyzed. On October 30, 1975, Martha Moxley was bludgeoned to death with a golf club in Greenwich, Connecticut. In 2002, she was last seen alive spending the time at the home of the Skakel family across the street from her home in Belhaven. Michael Skakel, also 15 at the time, and the nephew of Ethel Skakel Kennedy, the widow of Senator Robert F. Kennedy, was convicted in 2002 of murdering Moxley and sentenced to 20 years to life. In 2013, he was granted a new trial by a Connecticut judge and released on a $1.2 million bail. On April 25, 1984, Robert Kennedy's son, David, died of a cocaine and pethidine overdose in a Palm Beach, Florida hotel room. Then, on April 1, 1991, William Kennedy Smith, who also happened to be present at the Skakel family residence the night Martha Moxley was killed, was arrested and charged with the rape of a young woman at the Kennedy Estate in Palm Beach, Florida. The subsequent trial attracted extensive media coverage. Smith was acquitted. And lastly, yet another death by air. On July 16, 1999, J.F.K. Jr., the son of President John F. Kennedy, died when the airplane he was piloting crashed into the atlantic ocean off the coast of martha's vineyard massachusetts the two passengers on board kennedy's wife carolyn bessette and her sister lauren were also killed the piper saratoga light aircraft had departed from essex county airport in fairfield new jersey and its intended route was along the coastline of connecticut and across rhode island sound to martha's vineyard airport The official investigation by the National Transportation Safety Board concluded that Kennedy fell victim to spatial disorientation while descending at night over water, consequently losing control of the aircraft. Kennedy did not hold an instrument rating and was certified to fly only under visual flight rules. However, at the time of the accident, the weather and light conditions were such that all basic landmarks were obscured, making visual flight challenging although legally still permissive. Our next curse, the Curse of Canoe, also known as Tecumseh's Curse, is a widely spread explanation for why, from 1840 to 1960, every U.S. president elected or re-elected every 20th year has died in office. Rumor has it that Native American leader Tecumseh administered the curse when William Henry Harrison's troops defeated his forces at the Battle of Tippecanoe. And here's the timeline. William Henry Harrison was elected president in 1840. He caught a cold during his inauguration, which quickly turned into pneumonia. He died on April 4, 1841, after only one month in office. Abraham Lincoln was elected president in 1860, that's 20 years after 1840, and re-elected four years later. Lincoln was shot on April fourteenth. 1865, and died the next day. James Garfield was elected president in 1880. That's a a span of another 20 years since Lincoln was elected. Charles Guiteau shot him in July of 1881. Garfield died several months later from complications following the gunshot wound. William McKinley was elected president in 1896 and re-elected in 1900. Again, a span of 20 years since Garfield's election. On September 6, 1901, McKinley was shot by Leon F. Solgots, who considered the president the enemy of the people. McKinley died eight days later. Three years after Warren G. Harding was elected president in 1920, he died suddenly of either a heart attack or stroke while traveling in San Francisco. Franklin D. Roosevelt was elected president in 1932 and re-elected in 36, 40, and 1944. Although his health wasn't great overall, he died rather suddenly in 1945 of a cerebral hemorrhage or stroke. John F. Kennedy was elected president in 1960 and assassinated in Dallas three years later. Ronald Reagan was elected president in 1980, and though he was shot by an assassin in 1981, He did survive. Some say this broke the curse. George W. Bush, who was elected in 2000, escaped the curse and went on to serve for a second term in office. Which brings us to the Superman curse. The Superman curse refers to a series of supposedly related misfortunes that have plagued creative people involved in adaptations of Superman in various media, particularly actors who have played the role of Superman on film and TV. The curse is frequently associated with George Reeves, who starred in Adventures of Superman on TV from 1952 to 1958 and died of a gunshot wound at age 45 under disputed circumstances, officially ruled a suicide. And for more on this story, check our archives at 1001 Heroes for the episode titled Who Killed Superman? And that'll give you the whole story on the death of George Reeves which many people to this day still consider a murder. After George Reeves, it was Christopher Reeve who played the superhero in four theatrical films from 1978 to 1987 and was paralyzed in a 1995 horseback riding accident, dying nine years later at age 52 from a heart attack. The curse is often invoked whenever misfortune is experienced by actors and other personnel who work on Superman adaptations, so much so that some talent agents cite the curse as the reason for the difficulty in casting actors in the role in live-action feature films. The following actors who played Superman have sometimes been cited as victims of the Superman curse. Kirk Allen, A-L-Y-N, played Superman in two low-budget 1940s serials, but failed to find work afterwards because he was too closely identified with the role, and was relegated to voiceovers, commercials, and uncredited screen roles. He later appeared as Lois Lane's father in the 1978 Superman film. Aylan suffered from Alzheimer's disease later in his life and died in 1999 at the age of 88. Bud Collier voiced the first Superman cartoon from 1941 to 1943. He went on to enjoy a career in TV, hosting the game show To Tell the Truth. He returned to Superman by voicing The New Adventures of Superman for CBS in 1966. Three years later, he was dead of a circulatory ailment at the age of 61. Lee Quigley, who played Superman as a baby in the 1978 film, died in 1991 at age 14 due to solvent abuse. George Reeves played Superman in the 1951 film Superman and the Mole Men and the ensuing television series Adventures of Superman. Like Allen and Reeve, he was too closely associated with the role to find further work. On June 16, 1959, days before he was to be married, Reeves was found dead of a gunshot wound at his home with his Luger near him. The death was ruled a suicide, but controversy surrounds the death as Reeves' fingerprints were never found on the gun, and he had been having an affair with the wife of MGM executive Eddie Mannix. It was Reeves' death that inspired the conspiracy theories and the urban legend of a curse associated with Superman characters. Some other alleged victims of the curse, Marlon Brando, who played jor L in the 1978 film, is cited due to the misfortune he suffered in his private life, such as his son Christian's shooting of his half-sister Cheyenne's boyfriend in 1990, and subsequent decade-long imprisonment. Brando's own admission in court, he had failed his son and daughter, his daughter's 1995 suicide, and his later reclusiveness. He died in July 2004, three months before his Superman co-star Christopher Reeve. He would later posthumously appear, courtesy of stock footage, in 2006's Superman Returns. Margot Kidder, who played Superman's love interest Lois Lane opposite Christopher Reeve, suffers from intense bipolar disorder. In April 1996, she went missing for several days and was found by police in a paranoid, delusional state. Kidder dismisses the notion of a curse, remarking in a 2002 interview, That is all newspaper-created rubbish. The idea cracks me up. What about the luck of Superman? When my car crashed this August, if I hadn't hit a telegraph pole after rolling three times, I would have dropped down a 50- to 60-foot ravine. Why don't people focus on that? Comedian Richard Pryor, who had previously suffered from a drug addiction that led to a near-fatal suicide attempt, starred as villain Gus Gorman in 1983's Superman 3. Three years later, he announced that he was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. He died of cardiac arrest on December 10, 2005, at the age of 65. Brothers Max Fleischer and Dave Fleischer, who produced the Paramount Superman cartoons, began to quarrel with one another, and their studios suffered financial disaster. After selling off Paramount Studios, the new owners fired the two brothers. One of them died in poverty. But the curse was invoked again after three people involved in the creation of the Superman Returns DVD suffered injuries, one of whom fell down a flight of stairs. Another was mugged and beaten up, and a third smashed into a glass window. Director Brian Singer remarked, My DVD crew absorbed the curse for us. And here's something to keep in mind with actors in movies that present characters with supernatural or godlike powers. From Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. If you go to YouTube and look up Fabio's Bird Encounter, you won't believe this. It was once said that Cleopatra's face could move Julius Caesar to be kind. It was also said after the incident at Busch Gardens on the roller coaster that Fabio's face could kill a goose. Here's one written account from thedailypress.com, dated March 30th, 2016 this is not a funny story a person gets hurt an animal gets killed and lots of people get spattered with blood except that it is funny just on the sheer improbability of the details we revisit the story of fabio the goose and the bush gardens roller coaster it happened 17 years ago at the time everyone knew the story like everyone now it's surprising how many people never heard it so we tell it again the date was march 30th 1999 One day later, and the newspaper stories would have run on April Fool's Day, people across the country would have dismissed it as a hoax. But it really happened. Busch Gardens was introducing its new roller coaster, Apollo's Chariot. It's a great coaster. The concept of the ride borrowed from mythology, so to introduce it, the park brought in the closest thing we had at the time to a Greek god, the supermodel Fabio. He was handsome and brawny, with flowing tresses, and his open-shirted image was an icon of romance novel covers. He was sometimes depicted, as models often unfairly are, as a pretty face without a whole lot going on behind it. And he would take the first public ride on Apollo's chariot. Front row center, surrounded by ladies all dressed in white gowns. It was quite a visual image for the assembled media. Cameras rolled as the train pulled out of the station. But two minutes later, when it rolled back in, something was wrong. Fabio's face was smeared crimson. Was it lipstick from the overzealous ladies? And everyone on the ride seemed rattled. Then, pandemonium. Some folks ran to Fabio. Others moved to push the media back. It seems there was an incident on the ride's first drop as the riders hurtled toward the ground at approximately 70 miles an hour. A goose who had been nesting nearby flew into the path of the speeding coaster car. Best anyone can tell, the goose hit the front of the car, breaking its neck. The bird's carcass then flipped upward, striking Fabio on the bridge of his nose and causing a cut that would later require three stitches. No bones were broken, but there was some swelling. Turns out that was the extent of it. He wasn't hurt too badly, and he was a pretty good sport about it. The women riding with him took some splatter, which is what happens when a bleeding man with an open wound, which is what happens when a bleeding man with an open wound rides in an open car at high speeds. Now try to calculate the odds of this happening. In all the years that Busch Gardens has been open in Williamsburg, the only time a park guest is ever hit in the face by a goose while riding a roller coaster. It's not just a celebrity, but a model famous for his fine facial features. And it happens in full view of the media that the park has called to serve as witnesses. It's ridiculous, right? The story, which started out as a perfunctory theme park photo op, suddenly turned into a national headline. This was before the age of social media, understand. But word of the bizarre accident quickly spread across the country and around the world. Jay Leno quipped about it on late night TV. In quotes here, a collision between bird brains, end quote. And the pictures were all over the national news. Now when we tell the story, you can't help but chuckle. But you also can't help but wonder about that first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. The next time you visit the Smithsonian Museum in Washington, D.C., schedule some time to visit the display that holds the Hope Diamond. But don't get too close. That 45-carat diamond has a curse that has been attached to all those who have come in contact with it. In 1792, the Hope Diamond was stolen from the house that stored the crown jewels. The story goes that the curse started from the tavernier blue, which was the precursor to several large diamonds including the hope diamond take this with a grain of salt because it's never been proved jean baptiste tavernier stole the 115 carat blue diamond from a hindu statue where it was serving as one of the eyes upon discovering it was missing priests put a curse on whoever was in possession of the gem that's the story that's out there let's start with the cursed life of jean baptiste tavernier the story is that he came down with a raging fever soon after stealing the diamond, and after he died, his body was possibly ravaged by wolves. However, other reports do show that he lived until the ripe old age of 84. So, take the one that works the best with the story. Then there was King Louis Fourteenth. He bought the stone from Tavernier and had it recut in 1673. It was then known as the Blue Diamond of the Crown, or the French Blue. King Louis died of gangrene, and all his legitimate children died in childhood, except for one. But, but then there's always the question that maybe that was just typical for the times. Then there was Nicolas Fouquet, who worked for King Louis Fourteenth and is said to have worn the diamond for some special occasion. Shortly thereafter, he fell out of favor with the king and was banished from France. Then Louis changed this sentence to life imprisonment, so Fouquet spent 15 years in the fortress of Pignerol. Some people believe that he was the real man in the iron mask, but other accounts dispute this. Then there was Louis Sixteenth and Marie Antoinette. Louis Sixteenth inherited the French blue. Marie wore it, and I think we all know what happened there. That's the story anyway, but we have no photographic evidence that Marie wore the gem, but it fits in awfully nicely with the curse. Marie-Louise, Princess de Lamballe, was a member of Marie Antoinette's court, and was her closest confidant. She was killed by a mob in the most horrific fashion, apparently hit with a hammer, decapitated, stripped, and disemboweled, among other things. Her head was impaled on a pike and carried to Marie Antoinette's prison window. Diamond curse or not, horrible way to die. Wilhelm Falls was a Dutch jeweler who recut the diamond again. His son ended up murdering him, and then killing himself. Greek merchant Simon Moncharides owned the diamond. His curse? Well, he drove his car over a cliff and killed himself, his wife, and his child. Evelyn Walsh McLean Evelyn was a spoiled heiress who lived a charmed life until she bought the diamond. She happily wore the diamond, and there are stories that she would even affix the jewel to her dog's collar and let him wander around the apartment with it. But wearing the Hope Diamond came at a steep price. First, her mother-in-law died. Her son died at the age of nine. Her husband left her for another woman and later died in a mental hospital. Her daughter died of a drug overdose at 25. And she eventually had to sell her newspaper, the Washington Post, and died owing huge debts. Eve surviving kids sold the diamond to Harry Winston. Nine years later... Winston mailed the gem to the Smithsonian for $2.44 in postage and 155 in insurance. Which brings us to number 10. James Todd, the mailman who delivered the Hope Diamond to the Smithsonian, apparently had his leg crushed in a truck accident shortly after delivering it. He also suffered a head injury in a separate accident. Oh, and by the way, his house burned down. There's no doubt that Marie Antoinette... Louis XVI and Princess de Lamballe were a tragic, tragic bunch. And Evalon Walsh-McLean definitely went through her share of hard times. But lots of these are probably exaggerated and twisted a bit to fill the tale and make the curse seem even more terrible than it was. And as a footnote, the Smithsonian reports no problems to anyone who has been associated with the display. And lastly, the curse of James Dean's Little Bastard. Since James Dean's death in 1955, the Porsche 550 Spider has become infamous as the car that killed him. His nickname for the Porsche Spider, The Little Bastard. Not too long ago, a television show called Unsolved Mysteries did an episode on the curse of the James Dean Porsche. The story they did not only made the famous car seem more like Christine than Porsche, it was downright scary. Here's some of the stories. While filming Rebel Without a Cause... James Dean had upgraded from the 356 to the 550 Spyder and decided that he wanted to make it uniquely his. Dean called upon George Barris of movie car fame to customize the Porsche. He gave it tartan seats, two red stripes over the rear wheels, and plastered the number 130 on its doors, hood, and engine cover. The name Little Bastard was given by Dean language coach Bill Hickman and was later painted on the car by master pinstriper dean jeffries on september 23rd of 1955 dean met actor alec guinness obi-wan kenobi outside of a restaurant and had him take a look at the spider guinness told dean that the car had a sinister appearance and then told dean if you get in that car you'll be found dead in it by this time next week seven days later dean would be killed in his beloved little bastard Here's the way History.com tells it on September 30th. At 5.45 p.m. on this day in 1955, 24-year-old actor James Dean is killed in Chulamay, California, when the Porsche he is driving hits a Ford Tudor sedan at an intersection. The driver of the other car, 23-year-old California Polytechnic State University student Donald Turnipseed, was dazed but mostly uninjured. Dean's passenger, German Porsche mechanic Rolf Wetherich, was badly injured but survived. Only one of Dean's movies, East of Eden, had been released at the time of his death. Rebel Without a Cause and Giant opened shortly afterward, but he was already on his way to superstardom, and that crash made him a legend. James Dean loved racing cars, and in fact, he and his brand new $7000 Porsche Spider convertible were on their way to a race in Salinas, 90 miles south of San Francisco. Witnesses maintained that Dean hadn't been speeding at the time of the accident. In fact, Turnipseed had made a left turn right into the spider's path, but some people point out that he must have been driving awfully fast. He'd gotten a speeding ticket in Bakersfield, 150 miles from the crash site, at 3.30 p.m., and then had stopped at a diner for a Coke, which meant that he'd covered quite a distance in a relatively short period of time. Still, the gathering twilight and the glare from the setting sun would have made it impossible for Turnipseed to see the Porsche coming, no matter how fast it was going. Rumor has it the Dean's car, which he would nicknamed the Little Bastard, was cursed. After the accident, the car rolled off the back of a truck and crushed the legs of a mechanic standing nearby. Later, after a used car dealer sold its parts to buyers all over the country, the strange incidents multiplied. The car's engine, transmission, and tires were all transplanted into cars that were subsequently involved in deadly crashes, and a truck carrying the spider's chassis to a highway safety exhibition skidded off the road, killing its driver. The remains of the car vanished from the scene of that accident, and haven't been seen since. Wutherich, whose feelings of guilt after the car accident never abated, tried to commit suicide twice during the 1960s. And in 1967, he stabbed his wife 14 times with a kitchen knife in a failed murder-suicide. And he finally died in a drunk driving accident in 1981. Turnipseed died of lung cancer the same year. Thus ends the story of the curse of James Dean's Little Bastard. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. And a reminder, you can take advantage of Harry's great offer today. And go to www.harrys.com, that's H A R R Y S.com, and order a free trial kit. I'll guarantee it's the best shave you ever had. A splash of the bonus post shave balm, and off to work, where you'll have to fend off the women who will want to feel your baby butt's smooth face. One German engineered blade that you'll get days and days out of, one bottle of gel, and if you put the numbers 1001. In the promo code box at checkout, a bonus tube of post-shave balm. And it's only $3 shipping, an $18 value. And remember, the 1001 gets you the extra post-shave balm. Also remember to join us with our sister podcast, 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. We just finished up The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. And that's after doing a couple of great Jack London stories. And remember, too, no matter where you go to hear our podcast, whether it's Stitcher.com or PodBay.fm or iTunes Podcasts, you'll always be offered the opportunity to subscribe. And subscribing is free. Keep that in mind. Uh, You can search 1001 Classic Short Stories or 1001 Heroes and subscribe. And all that means is you'll be kept in the favorites column and you'll be reminded every time we launch a new episode. So when you see the subscribe button, please go ahead and subscribe to our show. It'll make hearing the show and keeping up with the new episodes a lot easier for you, and it's free. Otherwise, check us out at our website at 1001storiespodcast.com. That's a way to catch all our archives. So remember, the new show to download, 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. For now, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.